All right. Our teaching tonight, like I said, nestled into the verses that we just read a couple minutes ago, comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. And here we read the following. On their release from prison, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, the people raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke through the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. and They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. All right, I mentioned this right before the first lesson, but just so that we're all on the same page, in case you weren't here last week, we were looking at this longer narrative from Acts 3 and 4. Acts 3 and 4. In Acts 3, again, what you have is Peter and John going to the temple uh, for the afternoon hour of prayer, and there's a disabled beggar who's asking them for help. He's asking them for money. They say, silver or gold we do not have, but what we do have we're going to give to you. And they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. They grab him by the hand. They lift him to his feet. It's a miracle. And it attracts a lot of attention at the temple. It also, in that attention, creates a platform by which John and Peter can preach this like law gospel sermon that says, Jesus, the son of God, died for the sins of the world. Now is the time to repent and put your faith in him. Well, in that sermon, they absolutely indicted the Jewish religious establishment who was not happy about it. They throw Peter and John in jail And yet, after numerous threats, the next day, they release them. And the first thing that Peter and John think to do is go to their church. They go to the church, and what the church decides they're going to do is pray together. The chunk of our text here tonight is a prayer that's about seven verses long. It has several points to it that we want to take some time to unpack. But one of the things I want you to notice about it is it says, when they got together and prayed, I don't know if you noticed this, this is a subtle detail, it says, They raised their voices together in prayer to God. And then we have the quoted prayer. It never actually tells us who is praying out loud. We're assuming that it's not everybody saying the exact same thing, reciting at the same time. But the point is, they're all praying together. And here's the big idea. When you are of one mind, one heart, one spirit, God can accomplish a lot more through God's people when they're on the same page working together than when there's division in the church and there's conflicting goals and stuff like that. This group is absolutely united. And in the prayer, they touch on three distinct points. Okay, we're going to take a minute on each of these. First of all, in verse 24, they address God as creator. Specifically, what they say here is, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's God as creator. Now, The great prayer leaders of the Bible, throughout the Bible, whether you're talking about like a Nehemiah or an Isaiah or the psalmists, they often address God as creator. And they say things in their prayers like, you are the God who stretched out the stars in the sky. You are the God who holds the universe together. 
You are the God by whose generous hand all the mouths on earth are fed. They're acknowledging God as creator over all. You know what that does for you? It gives you what's called perspective. You know why perspective is so helpful? One of the reasons our problems look so big to us and we can't even see beyond them is because they're only a couple inches from our face and we have no perspective. What prayer allows you to do is it allows you to, in a sense, get in a helicopter and go up to like a mountaintop a couple thousand feet off the ground and see, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. From God's perspective, see, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that my problems are unimportant to God. It's that it's not a very big line item on God's budget. Like, he can take care of this pretty easily. And so, when you are in prayer and you get to go sort of like, you know what I'm saying, metaphorically to the mountaintop, the way the, the logic works in this, like the logical syllogism is this. When I'm on a mountaintop, I realize how small I am in the universe, right? If God is the creator who created the mountains, And so therefore, God is bigger than the mountain. And I'm smaller than the mountain, so my problems must be smaller than the mountain. Then God is bigger than my problems. Prayer allows you to do that. And the issue that each of us face is not primarily the size of our problems. It's the limitations of our perspective. And when you get into that vehicle of prayer, that helicopter takes you off the ground and you start to see in the grand scheme of things, these are no big deal for the God of the universe who holds everything together, okay? So when you, in your prayer life, address God as your creator, all right? Another concept. God is prophetic. They acknowledge this. So what they specifically do here is in this prayer, they're citing from Psalm 2. This is a statement from David who's talking about the anointing of a new king who is a foreshadowing ultimately of the king of kings. But he also says in this, that the rest of the rulers of the earth and the rest of the nations of the earth don't much like bowing down to this king. Now, what the early believers do here is they take that psalm and they apply it to their personal circumstances. And they say, wait a second, this is very much like, remember Herod. This uh, Specifically, the Herod they're referencing here is a guy named Herod Antipas, which is the, the Herod of the Easter account, and also Pontius Pilate. So collectively, They are like the corrupted religious establishment and the corrupted civil establishment. And what these people in prayer are saying is the whole world was like in collusion, plotting against you, plotting against Jesus to take him down. That's exactly what they tried to do. And yet, what did God do in all of that? Specifically, what they say is they did what your power and your will decided beforehand should happen. Did God make the sinful choices of Pontius Pilate? No, Pilate did. Did God make the sinful choices of Herod? No, Herod did. But here's how God's sovereignty works. He's so big and so powerful and so wise that he can see in his foreknowledge the choices that everybody is going to make and arrange them in such a way so that it works out always for the good of his people. God is sovereign enough that he can take the worst thing that happened in human history the murder of the one innocent person, the murder of God's son, and he can turn it into the best thing that ever happened in human history, the gift of salvation for sinful mankind. That's how the sovereignty of God always worked. The early believers are absolutely confident of this. And so having reminded themselves, this is why, so when they pray, they've reminded themselves, God is our creator. God is prophetic and speaks the universe into existence. 
God is sovereign over all things and works things, all things out for our good. And therefore, by the time they actually get to the request in their prayer, you know, it's super interesting. They've just had their lives threatened. Do they ask for protection? Nowhere in the prayer do they ask for protection. I'm not saying it necessarily would have been wrong to do so. We're going to talk about that in our application section. What I'm saying is they didn't do it. You know what they asked God for? Not for protection. They asked God for boldness. Help us to speak boldly and courageously the truth that we know of a living, resurrected Savior, the truth of your word. It's what they know. See, here's what they know. If God is sovereign over all things, is the creator of the universe who holds everything in his hand, for him to bless them, they don't need changed circumstances. He can use whatever circumstances, and if he has in his mind to bless them, if he has in his mind to defeat their enemies, it doesn't matter. He could move a mountain. He could empty a grave. He could speak a new universe into existence. That's not too big for him. And so they don't, they don't ask for different circumstances. They ask for boldness, to trust him, to proclaim his truth, and that his will, miraculously or not, be done. Because they reason, you know, if God who did not spare his own son for me, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give me all things? I got nothing to worry about. It's when they conclude their prayer that we're told that the home in which they are gathering for this prayer meeting is shaken with an earthquake. And we're also told specifically, the next line says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke God's word boldly. The Spirit comes down. There's a very clear inference, very clear inference. There is a world-shaking power that takes place when God's people are filled with his Spirit and willing to speak boldly the truth of his word. Let me put this a little bit differently. To the degree that you are shaken by the greatness of God, you will not be shaken by the circumstances of this life. You understand the difference? If you allow yourself to get shaken by the truth of God's word, there's nothing in this world that can ultimately shake you. Let's unpack this with a couple application points. I got three of them for you today. The first one is about how you direct personally your prayer lives. I'll tell you what, if I look at my prayer life throughout my life, there are times when I have prayed, I would call it, even though it was from my spirit, it was almost sort of out of my flesh more than out of my spirit. And what I mean by that is our flesh basically just wants to be comfortable. So like when we pray, it's like, okay, all the bad stuff that I don't want in my life, God, take that away. And the good stuff that I do want in my life, God, please deliver that. To some extent, that's a little bit of praying out of flesh. Now, here's why that's maybe not always the best idea. I'm going to give you three quick reasons why just praying only that God would take all your problems away isn't the best idea. Here's the first one. The whole universe is inevitably shaking. Like, that's what happens in this planet. It always will. Till the day that Jesus Christ comes back, since the day that mankind fell into sin, this world is getting rattled and dying. Everything is falling apart. Everything is running out of energy. Things fall apart is, is the saying, right? And if you're a, like a student of history at all, you know this is always the case. Uh, whatever empire that people thought was like, this is it. These are the rulers of the world, unsinkable. The Roman Empire, the British Empire at one point, the, the Soviet Union, not that long ago. People are like, indestructible, too big. Uh, the Titanic, the unsinkable ship until not that long afterwards, it sank. People are so impressive and things are so impressive until they're just not. 
Why are we so impressed by the things of this world that are all dying? They're all getting shaken. That's not the exception. That's the rule of physics. The second law of thermodynamics, entropy, everything is falling apart constantly. Everything. You are. You're running out of energy right now and you're falling apart. The sun is running out of energy right now. Any scientist knows that. It's going to fall apart. It's going to die. The things that we think are like this institution, like monoliths of society, like ask somebody who's a little older than you, your mom or your grandparent or something like that, about like uh, Sears or Toys R Us or uh, Tower Records or like Blockbuster. Oh my gosh, Blockbuster. I worked at a video store one time. Do you know what a video store is? No, you don't. Because you're too young to know, like you actually at one point had to get a physical disc. Before that, it was a physical tape that you had to get like a backpack because it was so heavy. Especially, I remember I threw my back out carrying copies of Titanic when it was a two-volume thing back when I worked at Family Video years ago. It's done. They're all done. Everything on this earth dies. Every institution, every person, every animal. You currently have some meat in your fridge. It was once alive. It ran out of energy. And I'll tell you what, it's not completely out of energy. If you leave it in your fridge a little bit too long, it runs out of more energy and you can't even eat it anymore because everything in this universe falls apart. Now, here's what I mean. If you primarily, the reason why it's so unique or unusual or nonsensical to primarily take that God would take away all the bad circumstances of life. If you're simply saying, God, take away all my bad circumstances, don't let things fall apart. You are praying in the exact opposite direction that Jesus told you will inevitably happen in life and that common sense observation tells you everything is happening in life this way. Everything falls apart. Why are you praying in the direction that you know is the opposite direction of reality in a fallen world? In other words, to pray, God, please don't ever let me get sick until I inevitably die, doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And here's what I'm saying. If you have a counterintuitive prayer, just be careful that it's not going against what is very clearly the direction that God says. Why pray against the direction Jesus says the world is going? Let me give you a second. I'll make it quick, this reason. The beginning of the book of Job, there is this great spot where essentially Satan goes to God and has this interesting conversation where he says, the only reason that your servant Job serves you so faithfully is because you've, he essentially approaches you like a genie that blesses him with all the good, prosperous things of life that he wants. If you don't bless him accordingly, if he faces hard times, he'll turn his back on you. God allows that challenge to take place. God allows Job to be tested. And I'll tell you what, as he often is, Satan is partially right. If you don't trust God in the difficult times, in some respects, you've never actually trusted God, right? Job was certainly moral at this point. Job was certainly religious. His doctrine was right at this point. But if his life is always going perfectly well, he hasn't had to functionally trust in God. He hasn't had to exercise faith in God. So if you're constantly asking yet God would take away all the problems of your life, how are you sure you're not doing something that is a testing you need? How do you know that that's spiritually even wise? Let me give you one more reason why just praying that God would take away all your bad circumstances, which is what the vast majority of us do most of the time when we pray. Let me give you one more reason why that might not make sense. So far as I can tell, the only way that you can make an argument that our time here on earth, the 70 or 80 years that we get is meaningful, 
is if you allow God to use you to be a blessing to the hurting and lost of the world. So far as I can tell, that's the only investment in eternity. So if I'm not letting God use me that way, what is the purpose of my life, really? You know, it's all going away. It's all falling apart anyways. Therefore, if the goal for you is to share God's word with the lost, to share God's grace with the hurting and sick and so forth, do you know that you're up for the task? Do you know that you're strong enough to face that challenge? Look at what the believers prayed for here, specifically in verse 29. It says, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants. Enable your servants means we're not currently able. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Very clearly, the goal of their prayer, the aim of their prayer, is that God would work in them and through them, not that God would just make their life easier. One of my favorite Bible commentators, somebody that I read almost every time when I'm prepping uh, sermon messages, has this to say in this section about prayer. He says, true prayer is not telling God what to do, but asking God to do his will in us and through us. It means getting God's will done on earth, not man's will done in heaven. How much of your prayer life has been spent trying to sell God on your plans for your life? And how much more should your prayer life be, God, get my heart to be humble enough to start orbiting around your will and your plans for your glory and my life? You'll notice the disciples don't say, Lord, protect our families. Lord, protect our lives. Lord, protect our freedoms. Lord, protect our health and our wealth. They don't say any of that. Now, again, I want to be careful here. I'm not suggesting that I think that that's wrong. And in fact, I think you can make the argument that in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says, deliver us from evil, to some extent, he's asking for protection. He's encouraging us to pray for protection against unnecessary difficulty in life. The disciples very clearly here knew they were on a mission, specifically the Great Commission. They accepted that calling and all they're asking for is enough strength to fulfill that calling. So let me just wrap up this point. This world is inevitably going to shake. Instead of asking God to stop shaking the world around you, maybe, maybe in your prayers, start asking God to make you more unshakable, regardless of whatever the circumstances of life may be. Okay? All right, second application. I'm going to call it shaking, 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 and shaking. Shaken by the circumstances of life, shaken by God's word, which allows you to actually become an active force for good in shaking the world. Here's what I mean. So the earth is quaking inevitably, and at the end of the prayer meeting that these early believers have, we're told that the house is shaken. What exactly is an earthquake? Why do things ever quake in life? So I'm not asking specifically about the, like the technical definition of what causes an earthquake. What I'm asking about because that word isn't even actually used here. What's mentioned is that the place shakes violently. Why do some things get rattled? Why do things shake violently and inevitably in life? I think this is why. I think this illustration will explain it. If, let's say, during this service, a meteor fell out of the skies from the heavens down onto Palmer Street, my guess is that we would not only hear it, we would probably feel it and feel it to the extent that it, like, knocked us all over in here. You know why? Because the meteor is more massive, it has more force, it has more weight than you and me. It shakes us because it's more substantial than us. And yet, interestingly enough, 
if I was, let's say, to go to a pool tomorrow, and you know it's nice and warm out, everybody's getting out to the pool, and let's say I go to a public pool, and I decide I'm going to jump into the pool, and I can see there, there's, there's a little five-year-old over there, a five-year-old boy who's floating on an inner tube being very relaxed, and I decide to cannonball next to him uh, in the public pool. I might be talking myself into it right now. It sounds kind of fun. The five-year-old on a flotation device is going to capsize and fall over into the pool. Why? Because I'm more substantial than a five-year-old. See? You get quaked by things in life that are more substantial than you are. So this is very helpful for understanding why do you get so anxious in life? You get anxious. Do you understand why you get anxious? You get anxious because you feel like the circumstances of your life are beyond your control. They're overwhelming. And you feel like you don't personally have the resources available to you to get those circumstances immobilized and, and, and essentially under control. And therefore, what ends up happening is you're going to be quaked by life unless you find your security in something that's bigger than this life. You're going to get rocked by this world unless you find your security in holding on to a rock that's bigger than this world. There's so many things, whether it is, this is, I mean, almost most all the counseling that I do, whether it is the inevitable, uncontrollable environmental circumstances around you, the economy, your work life, your health, or it is uh, trying to control other human beings who have their own independent will, and you just antagonize that relationship by trying to control them. Life is chaotic. And unless you have something extraordinarily secure that holds you in place, you are going to be overwhelmed by a big, scary planet. What that means, you better have the right foundation. If money functionally is your security in life, you're going to get quaked. If a romantic relationship, like I'm okay because so-and-so loves me, if that's your security, you're going to get rocked. If your children's welfare, for some of you, loving parents, if your child's well-being is what you find the foundational meaning and uh, happiness of your life, oh my goodness, you're going to get rocked. It doesn't matter. I mean, we had down at the Deer District last night, a couple of different people open fire, right? If your weapons are your security, if your security system is your security system in life, you're going to get rocked. Now, I'm not trying to make people uncomfortable. I'm not trying to advocate for recklessness. What I'm talking about is the inevitable shaking that happens in a fallen world. What did the early Christians do when life shook? You know, we saw it in our text here today. I'll tell you what, the other great Christians throughout history, when they give us some of their insights, there are a lot of great hymns throughout the history that are worth studying. So, for instance, just real quickly, let me show you one real quick because it perfectly exemplifies, I think, our text. A couple hundred years ago, how firm a foundation was written. You know what it says? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. That's the foundation of your life. That is your functional strength. What more can he say to you than what he hath said? In other words, you don't need him to say anything else. You don't need him to speak into your life and tell you it's going to be okay because he's already said enough. He's already said enough for you to be okay. To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled... Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I will still give you aid. I will strengthen thee, help thee, I will cause thee to stand. You cannot stand on immobilized ground. You can only stand on a firm foundation. 
upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. I'm in control of all things. Next, he says, when through the deep waters I call thee to go. He doesn't say I'm going to take away all the storms. He doesn't say I'm going to take away all the waves and deep waters. I'm going to call you sometimes to go directly through the deep waters. I call you to go there. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless. I'm not going to take away all your problems. I'm going to bless your problems. I'm not going to take away all your troubles. That wouldn't be in your best interest. I'm going to bless your troubles. And I will sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. You notice what they're doing here? They're talking about God. You are our creator. God, you are the prophet of our life that can speak the reality into the universe around us. And you are sovereign over all things, working all things out for our good. It's the exact same type of thing he's talking about here that we see in our text. The one thing that does not shake The one thing that does not end in life is the word of God. So build your confidence on that. If God's word is more substantial to you than anything in this world, this world can't shake you. To the degree, the more God shakes you, the less this world can shake you. By the way, what I'm trying to advocate for people to believe more, I've had sometimes people get upset with me because I will say, I, I think you need to believe more. Like, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I think you have some faith. I don't think you have enough faith. And sometimes people take that personally. And I'll even sometimes say, I think you're psychologically suffering because you don't trust God's promises quite as much as you do. And and again, when people get a little testy with me on that, I try to give them as many illustrations that I think are helpful as possible. One of them is, so weddings are on the brain right now. I've had several, several weeks in a row. Some of you are here celebrating a wedding tomorrow. Let me put it like this. When a couple gets married and they say, I do, and they sign that marriage license, immediately they're married. They're, in one sense, as married as they will ever be. The contract is signed. It's good. However, if later on they are in some type of passionate embrace, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. If later on they're in some sort of passionate embrace, are they more married than they were When they sign the marriage license? No, they're not more married. Are they experiencing their marriage on a deeper level than they were before? Absolutely. A lot of us, we are the bride of Christ. I'm not saying we're not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. What I'm saying is we lack significant intimacy with God in part because we don't totally trust the guy with our lives. And because we don't, we're missing out on a lot of the joy that he's trying to make available to us if we trusted him more. Here's the point. You will inevitably get shaken by this world to the degree that you are shaken by the grace, the forgiveness, the undeserved goodness, and truth of God. You will be less shaken by this world And actually, if you're standing on the firm foundation of God's word, what he will actually use you to do is he will create a leverage by which you can actually start shaking the world in a way that glorifies him. Here's what I mean by that. I'll just give you one example because I'll use the example of the text. I read it earlier. After the early Christians are filled with the spirit and they're shaken by God and they're fully on board with speaking boldly, the next thing in the lesson that it says that they do, what does it next talk about? how they spend their money. The very next thing is about their money. 
Now, here's the deal. If money is a powerful thing in life, and make no mistake, it is. I'm not saying money isn't powerful. It's one of the strongest resources and, and abilities to influence the world that we have here on earth. Why aren't Christians proportionately more generous, significantly more so than the rest of the world? Because statistically, they're not completely, right? Not right now. Not American Christians. Why are we not more generous with our money? Somebody might say, well, it's because we are greedy and materialistic. I think that might be part of it. Somebody else might say it's because we're proud and we don't want to give away money to somebody else who hasn't worked hard for it and doesn't deserve it as much as me. Maybe that's part of it too. You know what I think the real reason is? The reason more than any other? So far as I can tell in, in talking with people about their concerns, I think we're just terrified. I think we're really scared to let it go because money gives us the illusion of some level and semblance of control over our lives. There is not a single thing that you can do to tangibly express your belief, God, I know that you are in control of my life, than to give away more of your wealth. Uh, look at what the early Christians did. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions as their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. The more God shakes you, the less this world will shake you, the more you will shake the world in a way that honors God. Here's the last point, the seismic salvation. So, an interesting recurring pattern in the Bible is that when God comes down and he acts, very often the earth gets shaken. So just real quickly, a couple examples. In Exodus, right before God gives the law in Exodus 20, in Exodus 19, we're told that God comes down and Mount Sinai trembles. And uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he tells us that when God and his angels come down and fill the temple, the threshold of the temple trembles. And Deborah, in Judges chapter 5, tells us before the Israelites go off to war, when God comes down and leads the way, the earth before them trembles. Very clearly, the Bible is making a point that when God comes down and he's present, it trembles the earth. Uh, why? Because God is more substantial than anything on this planet, right? Okay, so here's what I think was happening to the early believers on this day in that prayer meeting. When they experienced that earthquake and they were transformed in a sense by that, I think not too long in the past, they had experienced the two great earthquakes of Holy Week. You know what the two earthquakes of Holy Week are? And in Matthew 27, on Good Friday, Jesus is on the cross dying for the sins of the entire world and we're told there is a massive earthquake that is so big that it actually tears the temple curtain in two from top to bottom. And this is part of what prompts the Roman centurion at that moment to say, look at this, surely this was the Son of God. And a couple of days later, there's another earthquake. It's on Easter Sunday morning and an angel comes down to roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb, and we're told there is a massive earthquake. Do you understand what's happening in those moments? What is God trying to communicate through those earthquakes? The divine justice of God on Good Friday at the cross came down upon the world and shook the world. Because this world has been trembling ever since the fall into sin, and actually Paul says in Romans 8, all creation groans. Everything 
uh, plant, animal, human, the planet itself suffers because of mankind's rebellion. And for that rebellion, God has to, a holy God has to bring his justice down. And when he brings it down, it shakes the planet. But interestingly, it all falls on the head of one guy. It falls on the head of Jesus at the cross. All the ultimate quaking of the earth fell on the one who loved us enough to take it in our place, to switch places with us. All the punishment, all the punishment that we deserve for our selfishness, for our unjust fears when we've walked around through life as cowards, for all of our faithlessness, our guilt and our shame, all of it fell on Jesus. Jesus was shaken apart at the cross so that you and I in switching places with him would become eternally unshakable, starting right now. How do I know? How do I know it took? How do I know that it worked and the the places were switched? It's because just as the justice of God came down on Good Friday and created an earthquake upon a sinful planet, why? Because the justice of God, the holiness of God is bigger than mankind's sin. That's not where it ends. The righteousness of God came and created an earthquake on Easter Sunday because the righteousness of God is bigger than death. The righteousness of God is bigger than the grave. You understand? What's more substantial? The holiness of God is bigger than this world, this sinful world, and so it quakes when it comes down and it quakes on Jesus. But because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he comes back on Easter Sunday and his righteousness is so big that it quakes death. You and I do not have to fear a single thing moving forward into our future, and you won't. To the degree that you understand the earthquake on Good Friday and the earthquake that takes place on Easter Sunday, this world doesn't get to quake you at all. To the degree that we're shaken by the greatness of God, we will not be shaken by the circumstances of this life. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, we stand on the sure promises of your word. Help us let go of anything else that we think is our security. That's our security a risen Savior, your righteous blood, your grace to us, and your inerrant word. That's what we stand on. Enable your servants, therefore, to speak your word with great boldness, the glory of your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.